0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today a very dynamic and brilliant and <clears throat> godly uh, dynamic duo. <laughs> I have on the show today Dr. Osvaldo Padilla and his wife, Kristen, or shall I say... Uh, Kristen Padilla and her husband, Dr. Osvaldo Padilla. Uh, Osvaldo is a professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School. Me and Ozzie, uh, I know him by Ozzie, his official name is Osvaldo, but um, uh, me and Ozzy go way back. We uh, met at Aberdeen University where we were both doing our PhDs in New Testament. And I'll never forget that Ozzy came in after me and finished before me. Now it took me a little over three years to do my PhD. So Ozzie completed his PhD in just over two years. And all of us other other PhD students were like, what in the world just happened? This dude just came in and wrote a dynamite dissertation in two years on the speeches of non-Christians in the book of Acts. And we talked a little bit about the significance of that. And it's actually pretty intriguing uh, to look at the, the theological role that the speeches from non-Christians, uh, the, the theological role that those speeches play in the overarching theology of Acts. It's actually really fascinating. Not only did he finish his DH, his PhD, but then he published his dissertation in the highest, most respected dissertation, um, series is, if you want to call it that from Cambridge University Press, like they only accept like a couple different dissertations a year to publish. And his was one of them. So anyway, all let's say Ozzy is absolutely brilliant. And his wife is absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, Kristen Padilla is an author, a speaker. She's written a book called now that I'm called a guide for women, discerning, discerning the call to ministry. And as the title suggests, that is a topic that we cover fairly extensively in this conversation. Both Ozzy and Kristen were raised with the view that women cannot serve in um, leadership positions or speaking positions at a church. And that's the view I I grew up with. It's the view that I'm still not completely um, done away with, if you want to say it like that. Um, I'm, I'm, as many of you know, I'm, I'm just constantly just kind of working through that question and thinking through and and looking at different arguments and going back to scripture. And I just, I just want to make sure I'm understanding scripture um, as clearly as I can in terms of does God desire that females, women, would serve in positions of leadership in churches? And I know it's a huge debate and it gets all gets people riled up. But anyway, we dig into that. And uh, Ozzy and Kristen are two amazing people to help guide a conversation in that topic. So without further ado, please welcome for the first time only the dynamic duo, Ozzy and Kristen Padilla. Okay, I'm here with my friends, uh, Ozzy and Kristen the, uh, uh, hey guys, how are you guys doing?
1: Hey, Preston. Good,
0: good to see you. I, I don't, you. I don't usually have two guests on. Uh, I don't know if I've ever had two guests on. Let alone a married couple, let alone a kind of theological duo. So <laughs> I'm super excited about this. Um, as I said, or maybe I said in the intro, I don't know. I haven't recorded the intro yet, even though people listening to this have already heard the intro, which is really weird. But um, Ozzy and I go way back uh, to our Aberdeen days. And um, I, uh, whenever I tell people about Ozzy, it usually is, um, has to do with, I think you were the, the fastest PhD student, at least in my time at Aberdeen. I think you finished in just over two years or something. Is that right? What was your total out-the-door time?
1: It was around that. It, it was just too cold there. <laughs> I wanted to okay. <laughs> and I, I, so li- like, I like my I like my Scottish friends a lot, but uh but not the weather. So <laughs> I
0: sh- I showed up in January coming from Southern California. Oh it, it was a literal slap in the face getting off that airplane. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is unbelievable.
1: <laughs> I, I came from Chicago uh, and uh, it was in September and it was uh, I remember when I was landing, uh, it, it was nice and sunny and I thought, oh, the weather is going to be beautiful. Yeah. And then uh, you get off the plane and it is it, it's like 45 and yeah. super windy already <laughs> in September
0: well September, yeah, September and January aren't too different in Aberdeen so no. why don't we uh Ozzy let's start with you um and then we'll talk about how you and uh Kristen got to know each other so uh you did a PhD at Aberdeen uh specializing in Luke Acts, or no Acts in particular um can you talk briefly about your dissertation topic and then also your academic journey going to Trinity and now to uh Beeson let's just sum that up to get us get us going
1: yeah, so uh, one of the reasons I did finish a little faster is because uh, uh, when I went to Aberdeen, I already had a pretty well-defined topic for a PhD dissertation, uh, and it was on generally on the speeches and the Book of Acts. There, uh, all those sermons that 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 we hear Peter and Paul preaching, uh, and uh, I decided to to do a uh, study on what non-Christians say. In the book of Acts, and it turned out it turned out uh, okay. Uh, so I had a great time there, uh, and one of the highlights was meeting guys like you and uh, Joey Dodson, who I, I know he's been in your podcast before.
2: Yeah.
1: And then after that, I went to Switzerland to the uh, University of Lausanne, and right. one of the one of the reasons for that was to uh, get my French to be a little better, and also to study with uh, Professor Daniel Marguerite. Daniel Margarat, who was a, a Francophone act scholar. And I spent a wonderful six months in Switzerland. And uh, after that, I, w- I had the opportunity to be at Trinity Tets up in uh, Deerfield. And then in uh, 2008, Beeson made an offer I couldn't resist. Okay. Uh, and uh, came here, and it's been uh, just o- over 10 years now. And uh, it's here that I met Kristen. Uh, she was in her, she was not my student. I always have to clarify that. She
0: wasn't. I thought she was. I was going to ride you guys. First. No, no. <laughs> but she
1: was an, M- an MD student in her last semester. Uh, and we just became friends. And then uh, when she graduated, uh, the friendship continued. And then uh, it's been uh, quite a few years now. when we have uh, one boy. His name is Philip. He's eight years old.
0: You guys are coming up on almost, is it been all 10 years? Have you yeah. celebrated? Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. That is so. Life really does fly by. Um, real quick, going back to your dissertation, um, I would love for, from from my audience the the part of my audience that may not be as maybe uh, in tune with the theology of speeches. So um, most people would kind of assume that okay, I'm reading Luke. Record a speech in the book of Acts, and he's recording what words were said in that speech, okay, but the speeches also reflect on, on some level the theology of acts the the what the, the point that Luke is trying to get across within i mean and, and I know both of you are evangelicals, you believe in the authority of scripture and everything like can you maybe unpack just briefly? how it's okay that say a biblical writer can also maybe rework or frame a speech in a way that conveys a theological point that he's trying to say while also accurately representing the, the history of what was actually said. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: that's, that, I think you, that's a good question. Uh, well, so, you know, the way that people write history today is not the same as history was written in the past. So for example, today we have uh, quotation marks, to separate the speech of the reporter from the speech of uh, a character, say in a an, in an, uh, newspaper feature or something like that. But in the ancient world, you didn't have quotation marks. So, so that already blurs the line between direct speech and indirect speech. The second thing is that uh, speeches in the ancient world uh, were uh, summaries at best, at best, there were summaries of what speakers uh, said, and the author who's reporting the speech, uh, it was okay for the author to put the words in his own language, in his own words. Um, now, this may come as a shock to a lot of people, but the majority of ancient historians uh, actually uh, did not care about uh, so much about what the speaker said, it was more when you reported a speech. It was more to show off what a good uh, uh, stylist you were as an author. Hmm. Uh, there were actually actually only a minority of scholars or historians in the ancient world who who gave a summary of what the speaker said. So one of the things I argue in my book is that uh, that Luke was one of those people, uh, the author of Luke and Acts. He 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 cares about what Jesus said uh, because he says he's the Lord. Uh, he cares about what the apostles said, said because they are uh, the set ones from the Lord, and so uh, he puts he puts their speech in summary form. So, for example, if you read the the sermon at Athens, uh, yeah. uh, their uh, the Areopagus speech, I'm sure that would have taken like an hour or two, but if you sit if you sit down with your Bible, it's going to take you at most five minutes to read it. Uh, that's because Luke is summarizing in his own words what Paul actually said, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so by doing that, especially by using uh, language that would go along with Luke's theology, uh, that is one of the ways that he's able to weld together the theology of Paul. Because remember, Luke was a follower of Paul. Paul was, in a way, his theological hero. Uh, So that's the way that he can weld together uh, his own thoughts, his own theology with Paul's words. So, uh, history, uh, it's still about what happened, it's still about what people said and did, but how it was reported is different than okay. today. Today, uh, we, would, we, will want a, uh, we will go to the internet and find the, uh, what's the right word transcript? here? Transcript? Yeah, thank you, the transcript. She said, well, tell me about the speech that so-and-so gave. I said, well, go to the internet and find the transcript. Uh, in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. You didn't have that technology. So authors at best gave a summary of what uh, of what the speaker said, so the Mars Hill speech,
0: you're saying, if we had a went into a time machine and were there at Mars Hill, I was just there this last summer oh, at the supposed location. Um, we would have heard, well, on the one hand, we would have heard something quite. Well, let me say different. And yet, if we took Paul and sat him down and had him read our Greek New testament and, and Luke's summary of Paul's speech, and Paul was to look at what well, Luke how Luke summarized it, Paul would say, yeah, that's 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 the that yeah, that's an accurate summary of and you know, part of my speech or maybe the main gist of my. like he would be he wouldn't look at Luke's version and say, "Wow, you." jerk you totally misrepresented me like he would say no this this is representation but i mean if if we went back in time we, we would have heard something like you said i mean obviously 10 times longer whatever and different yes. words maybe even different styles and different phrases um
1: yeah i mean just when you compare like that that that's that particular speech to paul's letters uh there is some language that paul that you find in paul's letters that you also find in act 17 so I wouldn't be surprised if Luke included some of even some of the words of, okay. of Paul, but what you would find would be a summary. You would find a uh, paraphrase. Would that, is that a good word? Uh, maybe a paraphrase of of what uh, Paul said. Um, and uh, and you know, I tell I tell my students here, uh, if you don't believe that that that's how speeches worked more or less in the ancient world, what do you do with the Jesus of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, yeah. and the Jesus of John, they sound very, very different. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is that I think uh, that the, the Jesus of John, John is paraphrasing in his own words uh, what Jesus said. And, and, he's, uh, and that was okay in the ancient world. And uh, come to think about it, even historians today and reporters today, uh, even their reports are not completely. Objective. Yeah.
2: Subjectivity.
0: You know, it's fun. I mean, I kind of do that in some of my own books. Like, I tell a lot of s- stories and books I write of summarizing people. And a lot of these stories are me recalling conversations that I've had. So, what I often do to make it engaging, to make it personal, I'll record a dialogue in quotes. Uh-huh. You know, and I talk to my friend and ask them, da, da, da. And then here's what they said, da, 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 in quotes. And we go back and forth but then I'll send it to them and say, Hey, is this, can you agree? Like, does this sound like that conversation we had, you know? And they're like, yeah, that's, that's it. So even, even then in quotation marks, I'm capturing largely a summary of what they said, but I'm, I'm making sure that they agree with like, yeah, that's, that's basically the point. Like what, were those word for word? I don't even remember what I said, but yeah, I can sign off on that. So even in a modern context, and e- e- even now, I mean, I've kind of outed myself that that's what I do in, in some of my, um, or, you know, I, I, people are like, well, that's fine. You're, you're, you're trying to represent what they're saying. They're agreeing with it. So like, what's the big deal? You know, like, I don't think even we demand
1: that kind of precision. Yeah. Um, that's a, I think that's a very good analogy with the way you just described it there. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, and and that's, yeah. So that's the way in a sense that we do it today. That certainly the way they, that they did it in the ancient world. And now I tell my students, the Bible wasn't wasn't inspired in the 21st century. It was inspired in the first century. Uh, and so you cannot demand that, uh, that things would be done like they're done today.
0: So I have so many more questions, man, but this is going to two guys <laughs> talking together is going to kind of work against the actual main topic that we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, I need to hear your voice.
2: <laughs> can can you? Oh, can you
0: <laughs> I've never actually asked you this. So here's this professor, this new professor, uh, with this funny accent. Um, well, what is what's going on through your mind when you first met Ozzy? Who who's Ozzy? Or sorry, Doctor Pedia. Um, when you were a you know finishing up, uh, let's say M MDF student at Beeson.
3: Yeah, I'm a little nervous to tell you what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, oh, know, I heard this before. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't I was as he said I was in my last semester as an MDiv student, so I was uh, I took three and a half years, so I was 26, I believe, at the time, and I wasn't looking for a future husband um, per se. I wasn't um, pursuing or uh, uh, seeing a new professor and uh, thinking in that direction. Um, however, uh, I did notice that he was unmarried and that he was attractive, <laughs> and uh, I, I like to say that um, through the sovereignty of God, he just put us in um, situations that, that we found ourselves together that we could get to know each other mm-hmm. that would not have been possible any other way because I wasn't his student. He was not my professor. I was taking uh, three courses to finish up. So I wasn't on campus as much. Um, but it just, we just happened to have those um, those random kind of appointments. Uh, the first kind of major one was uh, we had parked um, in the parking lot at the same time. And it's quite a bit of a walk from where we park to our building. And so we just uh, walked from our cars all the way up to the school and um, got to know each other that way. And
2: yeah,
1: that's when I noticed man, she is good looking. <laughs> but I, I, had to, I had to repress that, you know, because I was the professor and so on. But uh, you can admit that now, yeah. yeah. But now I can admit it, yes. And she was, uh, well, that day she read scripture in chapel. Uh, and she was holding some conversations with some people, so I could tell she was uh, serious about God. Uh, she was very intelligent. So, uh, yeah, nice to make friends with her.
3: <laughs> and I, I'm the daughter of a pastor, uh, a Baptist pastor, and I always just told myself I would not marry a pastor. Um, because it's, <laughs> And not because, I, I mean, I love my dad, and I had a great experience. It's just a hard life as a mm. uh, pastor's family, uh, so I, but I never imagined that God would give me a professor, <laughs> um, which was just um, neat how God orchestrated that, because I did have a seminary degree. I wanted to have a spouse who um, loved scripture and knew, knew enough scripture that we could have um, really good conversations, mm-hmm. and so it just worked out. God worked it all out together.
1: I hope I haven't transmitted some heresies to her. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. Um, so,
0: Chris, okay. so y- you were raised Baptist then, right? I mean, is that?
2: Yeah,
1: so,
0: I... since I really want to spend a good deal of time talking about w- women in ministry, I don't love the way that's, whatever phrase you want to use, women in leadership, women elders, preaching, whatever. Um, what's been your journey in that conversation? I would assume being raised Baptist, I don't want to, unless yeah. it's maybe American Baptist, I don't know, like, Mm-hmm. I would assume that you were raised in an environment that was like no women in ministry, and yet now you yeah. wouldn't hold to that view. Can you talk to us about your journey?
3: Sure, um, and I write about this in the introduction of my book. Um, Now that I'm called,
0: so, right? Uh, I did to mention that. Now that I'm called is the book you've written. You've written one or two books. One, one book. One book. Okay. Now that yeah. I'm called. Okay.
3: Yeah. Um. So my the the short version of my story is that um. I did grow up in a strong Christian home. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor, and his first church was a very small church in rural East Texas. And so he was the only staff member um, at the church. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, saved as a young girl at a Billy Graham con- uh, crusade in Little Rock. And from a very early age, just had a um, desire to serve the Lord, love the Lord, love the church. And I, I have a, mem- a, a, a vague memory of this, but my mom and dad remind me of it, that when I was seven or eight, I cried one, one Sunday, why didn't God make me a boy so I could be a preacher? And I wasn't having any kind of gender dysphoria of thinking that I should have been a boy, but it was more a reaction of the tension of, of this desire to want to serve the Lord just like my dad is serving, but not seeing any women doing it. And so my dad never, nor my mom, ever said, you can't serve the Lord in ministry because you're a female. But my reality was such that there weren't any living female um, examples. Of course, we had Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, but they were dead. (laughs) So again, (laughs) not living examples. Um, And I had a misconstrued understanding of missions. So I didn't feel that God was calling me to missions. All the traveling evangelists that would come in to do revivals were male. Um, so I struggled with, um, for many years, with, man, I have this desire to serve the Lord. I don't know what this would look like, what this means, but I don't see a space for me. I don't see it working out. And it wasn't until I was 15 that my mom, um, and my mom was a really good influence, both my parents are great and had a great influence in my life, but my mom uh, really encouraged me to just be obedient to God, even if I couldn't see what that end result would be. Uh, So I did the Baptist thing, and I surrendered to ministry and went down, greeted my dad at the end of the aisle. And, you know, when the service is over, everyone comes and shakes your hand. And, and all the people that came forward affirmed that they saw God's work in my life, that they saw God's gifting in my life, um, but they couldn't place me. And so the two things that they said were, they either said, you're going to be a great preacher's wife or a pastor's wife, or they would say, you're going to be the next Beth Moore. Or do you want to be the next Beth Moore? Uh-huh. And so by that point in my you know, mid-90s, 15, 16-year-old, um, Beth Moore was kind of a, an, an anomaly, really, but a woman doing mm-hmm. a word-based ministry. Um, so those were the two options that were presented to me. Um, I went on to college, to Washtenaw Baptist University, had a great experience um, continued to be affirmed by other people, by the church, but again, um, didn't know what vocational role that would take, that would be. You know, women's ministry, I guess, was always an option, and we can revisit this, Crescent, um, if you want, but it wasn't until many years later because I resisted being a women's minister. It was really just until a few years ago that I, I realized the reason I was resisting being a woman's minister was because I had believed a lie that women weren't worthy enough to have a really good Bible teacher. Oh, wow. So the experiences I had had, um, in the church in college was such that as soon as men leave the room, so does the Bible teacher with any theological education. And so often a lot of the Bible studies, um, with the exception of Beth Moore, were very thin, theologically thin. And so it communicated to me that if I wanted to have a ministry of value, like a, like if I wanted to be a serious Bible teacher, it couldn't be to women, um, or it couldn't be just to women. So um, I came on to seminary to Beeson Divinity School, had a wonderful, great experience, um, but still didn't see um, what God had in store. Um, but it was while I was a student at seminary that God put on my heart other women like me who we felt called by God to serve him, um, but felt like we were having to make our own path. And I know i would listened to the podcast he did with Tish, um, some no. Warren, and she, um, in my book, I feature testimonies of various women at the end of each chapter and Tish was one of them. And so she described um if I get this right, being like in a jungle where she's having to with the machete uh chop down her own path. Wow. And I described my journey as like being in a dark room with my arms outstretched trying to find a light switch or trying to find the door. So it was in seminary as I was um meeting other women and involved in my local church and meeting with young women in the youth group who God was calling, they all kind of had similar stories. My story wasn't unique. And so all that to say that, um, that experience in seminary really, um, God just put on my heart that he had something in store for me when it came to women in ministry in general. Um, when I graduated seminary, it was in 2008 when <laughs> the economy crashed. And so between there already being a small vocational spaces for women, plus the economy, um, I couldn't find a job in ministry. Um, so it wasn't until 2015 that I came back to work at Beeson Divinity School. And there's a lot of other things that we could get, go into. But I, I said i would give you the short version. And that kind of...
2: Yeah, <laughs> what,
0: what was your theolog... Like? Talk to us about your theological journey. I mean, did you always, growing up, did you feel like you believed scripturally that men should only be pastors and leaders and then grow to change your view on that? Or were you never really convinced of the complementarian view from scripture? Yeah. How, how did, when, when did that change your your scriptural understanding of this topic?
3: Yeah. So I didn't even know what the word complementarian was until I was in college in okay. a theology class. And in that class, we were assigned, um, we, were, we were having to debate someone in class. And I was assigned the egalitarian position um, to debate a th- okay. female student on the complementarian position. And that was the first time I knew these words, I'd heard these words. So I never questioned my reach. My, I never questioned that men should be pastors. Um, what, and I never really questioned why, you know, that women should or shouldn't preach. It was more, my attention was, why do I feel so strongly called by God to have a, a proclamation ministry of teaching? And I, we would call it speaking <laughs> instead of preaching. Um, so I would say, why do I feel called to speaking? And teaching, uh, and yet I don't, where can, I, where's the space for me to do that was more of my attention. Where can I live out that call? So, it, I, so yeah, so I never questioned whether men, only men should be pastors or should preach behind the pulpit. I didn't even know about the, the debate until that theology class And even then, when I was assigned that position and started reading, I was frustrated because I thought I would lose the debate because I realized I was a complementarian. So that, but reading that book, it was... You you were
1: a complementarian because of some text of the Bible that you were reading?
3: No, I think just by default, just by, just at that point, I hadn't really explored biblically, theologically, what i believed about that specific issue oh. it was just an inherited belief system yeah
0: i um and, and pe- so, people you respect your dad and others hold it and it's like i mean yeah. we, we grew up in these environments and I'm, I'm not even saying it's necessarily bad it's just yeah people you respect hold it they know god's word you trust them and and yeah it's easy to right. It's easy to have a conviction without being able to actually defend it from scripture yourself, you know? I mean,
3: Right. And scripture. it wasn't until I got to seminary at Beeson that I really did start wrestling with the text okay. because I, I am a, a <laughs> I'm an evangelical in the sense that I am committed to the authority of scripture. Mm-hmm. I want to be biblical. I don't want to disobey God. Yeah. And so I was forced to have to wrestle with some of the difficult texts in scripture, and it and it caused some questions for me. Can I even be called as a woman? Does my does my gender prohibit me from a word based ministry? Should I even be in seminary? Therefore, you know, therefore, so I. During my time at Beeson, I still didn't have it figured out, and I still don't, but it, it really has been a journey, um, and one that has been enhanced and so helped by Osvaldo is we've had a lot of conversations at home, and him being a biblical scholar, has he's been able to sharpen me, and so um, I, I have, I'm at a place, and we can get into it, but I'm okay. at a place where I don't see the see in scripture that it's a sin for women to preach god's word or to teach god's word um there are people who do believe that today and who say it's a great heresy and the that women can't do that um so i theologically i believe that women can have um a ministry of the word Mm -hmm.
0: what what do you so uh, the obvious question is what do you do with first timothy two that You know,
3: yeah,
0: let's. Uh, I guess we need to quote it. So, like, (laughs) I do not. So, Paul Paul says, I do not. uh, (laughs) Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over over men. Is that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing or
3: right? Uh, I'll let Ozzy jump in at whatever point, but I think a a lot of this depends on where you start the conversation. Do you start there, right? Or do you start which passage of scripture do you start with? So I want to pose that question. And then secondly, I want to read scripture with scripture and conversation with scripture. Um, So in verse nine, when it, I believe it's verse nine, when it talks about women and their hairstyles and their jewelry and, you know, dressing modestly, we read that and we say that's cultural or, Mm -hmm. or we can, we can adapt that to, however it best fits in our church and then we get to the next verse um or or verse 11 i think with Uh women being silent and we say oh well it's it's it we're it's it's a literal reading right but we don't silence women all the way through in fact um as i'm doing this project on the reformation uh I've, I've been learning that even women um, prior to the time of the Reformation and during the time of the Reformation weren't allowed to participate in congregational singing based on first Timothy two. Oh, wow. um, so even John Calvin was criticized by a Catholic for allowing women to sing. And the Catholic says, but Paul says to be silent. And Calvin says, let her sing. And so, <laughs> so, even on that verse about what it means for women to be silent, we, we interpret that depending on our context, you know, yeah. to what extent a woman is to be silent. And then we get to the teaching and having authority, mm-hmm. um, which I'll let Oswaldo talk more, yeah, <laughs> more well, on. But then we move on to verse 15, where women should be saved through childbirth. And we say, that's not what Paul means literally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because, you know, we don't believe in a works based salvation. Um, so here's what Paul really means. So I, I guess what I want to say as, as we talk about this really important passage is recognizing that it's one that it's not just an easy plain face reading
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, all the way through from verses 9 through 15. Um, and, and asking the question, why are we interpreting one verse in a way that might be different from the very next verse? Mm.
0: So yes. yeah, so I mean basically there's clear textual evidence in that same passage that something shouldn't be taken literally, and every commentary 99% of commentators would agree with that. So at least be open to the possibility that the women chant can't teach exercise authority of men might mean something less literal than it seems. Um, right. Ozzie, you, so Ozzie, you were raised, I mean, grew up, um, I would say even into the PhD program would have been complementarian, right? I think you and I might've been the only complementarians at Aberdeen <laughs> at that time. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that correct? I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, that's, uh, you know, I became a believer when I was 18 years old. Uh, I was a, uh, I was a, I was in a gang in South Florida. I was into huh. drugs. Into my brother was a drug dealer. Uh, my mom had gone through three divorces. Our family was really really broken, wow. and uh, the Lord just reached down and and just saved us. Uh, my brother is a pastor now in Florida. So we had we had a, uh, God. God was so merciful to us. And we converted in the context of a, of a very conservative church, a wonderful ch- church that was a gospel-preaching church, but uh, it was a very conservative uh, church in, in, in gender uh, questions. Uh, so I, you know, like you said earlier, you grow up around or or, or you develop theologically around people who believe uh, towards more of the complementarian end of, end of the spectrum, and so you sort of, almost by osmosis, you, uh, you, you take that view. And so uh, my view was that, uh, uh, okay, so being a conservative Hispanic is not the, in church is not the same as being a conservative Anglo, okay. right? Because our cultures are different. So in the, in the Hispanic church, uh, we just, this is paradoxical. Even though you have a machismo culture, uh, nevertheless, women were given a lot of liberty. Um, huh. uh, you know, and so it wasn't as, um, it wasn't as, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, it wasn't as ideological. Uh, there wasn't a strong ideological root why women shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be preaching to the whole congregation. Uh, they just had a couple of verses and that was it. So I grew up in that context and then, uh uh, went through seminary at, at Trinity with with, with that uh, belief uh, namely that uh, yes women could teach other women women could teach children uh, they could sing all of that in the church but they could not uh, they could not serve at the table they could not serve the Eucharist and they could not preach on a Sunday morning when the church was gathered so that was my belief and I never questioned that uh, And one of the reasons was because of that text of 1 Timothy 2. That seemed to me to be pretty clear. Uh, But I want to say that after I finished the PhD, uh, uh, this will knock down a caricature that that you do all your thinking when you're doing your PhD, and then you're done thinking about issues. Uh, Not at all. Sometimes you just begin thinking about issues when you finish. Uh, So when I finished the PhD, and I was being interviewed at Trinity, this was one of the questions that they asked me about. And for the first time, I started to think about people like Gordon Fee, um, who is an evangelical Christian, mm-hmm. committed to the inspiration of the Bible, and yet he believed that women could be ministers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if Gordon Fee believes that, and I have a lot of respect for him, I should at least investigate and give a, a, a serious uh, study to what he has to say about that and people like him uh the other thing and am i'm sure you you will uh you can uh, empathize with this the british education that we received uh makes you almost forces you to take the opposite view uh, yeah. uh all the time uh, i'm sure you remember in our seminars new testament seminars uh how we would see people like simon gather call on francis watson <laughs> start playing devil's advocate. Oh, uh, yeah. you remember that? That's so ingrained in the British system, uh, which I think is a healthy thing. Yeah. And that that stuck with me. And then I started becoming devil's advocate against complementarian views, right? Uh, and then uh, I started reading the text uh, in, a, in what I think is a what I like to call a more hermeneutically mature way, uh, realizing that the moment that I read a document from an from the ancient world um and and from a different culture and language that already is never going to be a plain reading Mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean that we cannot not understand the bible if we don't know greek of course we can but the moment you read uh the word of god which is foreign it's a foreign word in two ways it is foreign because it comes from god who is transcendent so that makes it foreign already to us as humans but it is also culturally foreign it comes from a from you know in the New Testament and Greek, that greco-Roman culture, and so when I step into that word, world through that word, I'm stepping into a different world, and I cannot take assumptions uh, that I normally take uh, uh, that we also call the straight reading of the text mm-hmm. and so what I started doing too was reading some of the uh, some of the philosophers of that period, uh, and a, a friend of ours just published a book that he he'll, he'll love this. Uh, (laughs) Joel, to be honest, he just wrote a book called Paul and the Giants of Philosophy. So, anyways, very good book, recommended. But I started reading the philosophers of that period uh, who spoke about morality in the world of Paul. People like Plutarch, Mm -hmm. like Dio Chrysostom, like uh, Cicero, uh, you name it. And what I began to realize is that the language they used uh, when speaking about the conduct of women in public was incredibly similar to the language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2 when he talks about the conduct of women in public.
2: Hmm.
1: So what that did for me, it did the following. It told me that the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 2, although, of course, the Word of God, inspired Word of God, nevertheless, in a sense, did not fall from the sky. They, it, it was language that people in that period were using. Um, so it, it may, it, 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 this forced me to see the very rootedness of the, of the words of Paul, again, though, though inspired by God, yet so rooted in that culture that it made me ask the question, when we translate that text into modern practice, how much of the translation uh, should, how, how, much, how much of the culture of Paul should we translate along with the theology of Paul? See, Paul is in a, in a patriarchal culture, uh, but you know this well, uh, but just to give an example, uh, the, 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 the husband, the man is the pater familias, yeah. uh,
2: the,
1: like the godfather in the, moment, <laughs> uh, the godfather. And it, this is amazing. if, uh, if, if, the, fa- if uh, the father dies, you would think that the inheritance will go to the wife, right? That's what we would expect in North America. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, the, 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 uh, the house and everything would go to the male sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's an example of, of the ancient patriarchy. Another example would be um, that uh, the, the father had to agree with the religion that the children took, co- took over. So if the children uh, decided to follow a religion that was not the same as the father— it was a scandal. It was a, it was a shaming of the paterfamilias. It was a breaking of pietas, a breaking of the honor of the paterfamilias. Mm. Uh, that's a strong patriarchal culture. And uh, Paul is living in that culture. He's writing in that culture. Uh, and so I'm wondering, how much of this stuff is Paul just reflecting the culture? Uh, and, and so, therefore, we should leave it back there. Uh, because we don't want to bring the culture along with the word of God. We want to bring the word of God and how much is the word of God that I should bring, uh, to the present. Uh, I hope that's not too confusing.
0: Um, yeah. What do do you have, I'm putting on the spot here. And if you can't recall anything, do you have any specific examples when you looked at the Greco Roman background of how they viewed women in public, even from an ethical standpoint? Um, is there anything that stands out when you looked at the background that really helped you understand, for instance, first Timothy or first Corinthians? Yeah. Yeah. 14, yeah and, its
1: and I had to wrestle with that. But I'm writing a commentary for the the on new Testament commentary series by IVP. And I've been assigned the, the pastoral epistles. Oh, right. So, so I've, this been is wrestled, okay. I've, been, I've been wrestling with that recently. and I don't know if I have the answers, but uh, well, here's a quick, here's a quick example. So Plutarch, the famous uh, philosopher. Yeah. Thought, uh, thoughtful man of the ancient world who was a patriarchalist and so on. Uh, he wrote this little essay uh, about how a husband and a wife should, uh, should get along and how they should act. So here's what he says about uh, uh, the, the, the husband and the wife in public. So here's a quote. He says, quote, For a woman ought to do her talking either to her husband or through her husband, and she should not feel aggrieved if, like the flute player, she makes a more impressive sound through a tongue not her own.
2: Huh. Of
1: course. Uh, so that's an amazing statement. So and there are other statements in people like Plutarch who say, when you are in public, mm-hmm. uh, let your husband do the talking, not the woman, because that is not that, that's just not right. You're shaming your husband mm. if you are the one who takes the lead. And so when I read, for example, 1 Timothy 2, two uh, 11, 12, and 13, when it says I don't allow women to have authority over men, I read that as a very, in the context as a very negative thing. So I would translate that as I do not permit a woman to basically take over the Bible study that is happening in, in, the, in a home where the first Christians met. I don't allow them to do that. Uh, not only is that not biblical because... Um, you, you, you know, you cannot uh, step over someone. That's just not Christian love. But also, in that Greco-Roman culture, if the woman would have done that, the outsiders, the non-Christians outsiders who were looking into Christianity, they would have thought that this was madness. Hmm. Uh, that this was a movement where women were leading, and that had, had a very, uh, yeah, that, that that would have been, that would have been difficult for people to accept. So,
0: so there's certain. So I just read an article by um, I'm forgetting her name. Um, Oh, Judith gundry Wolf. Um, yes. And she's done a ton of work on this. And she has a, a long, um, in-depth, very academic article in on 1 Corinthians 11. Uh-huh. And as you know, um, what my audience might not know, but 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 2 to 16, the whole head coverings thing, yeah. you know, it's one of the strangest passages within a, so like, for instance, if you look at, first uh, Corinthians 11 verses seven to nine, you know, Paul says, he seems to say like women don't even bear God's image. Like the, women bear the image of man, man bears. And you're like, what did he just say that? Two verses later, he like says almost the opposite. Like, <laughs> and don't you forget, like you came from women and women you know, I am like, what, what, are you like a feminist or a misogynist? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. And, and And so, anyway, it's it's no matter where you're coming from, that passage is incredibly difficult. What she points out there, and I'll remember this because I read it a couple days ago, is that Paul is navigating, maintaining. Oh, how how do I say it? Certain social codes of conduct where you don't want to violate thick cultural kind of like codes of honor. Uh At the same time, within that patriarchal system, he's trying to elevate women and maintain genuine equality. And and that's why you have some statements where it seems like he's kind of giving a nod to the societal expectations. He doesn't want to disrupt the whole thing and cause all kinds of men being shamed according to public expectations of what shame and honor looks like, but then also trying to elevate women within that. And, and I, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's one of the best articles on trying to make sense of a passage. I don't care where you're coming from; it's just a tough passage to work through. Yeah. But anyway, I hear you saying that that Paul does, he he, in a sense, the Christian movement is disrupting hierarchical uh, standards in the Greco-Roman world, and yet he he doesn't want to do it too much. In a sense, I mean. Yes. Is that am I on the right track there that there, he is walking kind of a delicate balance of being disruptive, but not so disruptive that it discredits the whole movement? Is that- Yeah, that's,
1: that's very perceptive of you. That's, that, that's, that's pretty much what I'm saying. He cannot move too fast because if he okay. moves too fast, he's going to lose the gospel and, in the sense that people are not going to listen to the gospel. And if we have no gospel, we have no possibility of change in this world. Mm. Our only hope for change is in the gospel. And so if we do something that will that will turn people off from the gospel then we have some serious problems. Well so, it was William Webb
0: I mean I still I know it's an old book now well, 17 18 years old uh wives you no know, women slaves and homosexuals right that but it just I mean he cuz he he does he clearly does this with slavery right He doesn't do away with slavery but he guts it from the inside out says things like yeah. Mm-hmm. slave you know slave owner masters honor your slaves and they're equal to you which was unheard of in the ancient world but he doesn't say you know get rid of your slave like, he doesn't end slavery but he does move in that direction and it correct right. w- would you agree with his work that he that that he seems to be doing the same thing with the ancient view of women um pushing things yeah. but not overthrowing the whole entire system
1: i actually uh have my students read that book in one of my classes okay. uh, because I think it's one of the most sophisticated, even if, even if you can't agree with everything in the book, yeah. uh, it is one of the most sophisticated accounts of moving from the biblical world to our world in a hermeneutically mature way. So, you know, for me, uh, Kristen mentioned at some point, a lot of this depends on when you, where you start in Scripture. Yeah. Uh, now, we, in the church, we, n- normally we know the New Testament better than the Old Testament. That, that's been my experience mm-hmm. at churches. But when I started reading the Old Testament, and actually Kristen opened my eyes to this when she was writing her book, uh, you know, I find people like Miriam, Deborah, Holda, and then in the New Testament, we have Mary, who's basically speaking the word of God in the Magnificat. Mm. Uh, you have uh, Philip's daughters, yeah. Philip the Evangelist in Acts, who Luke goes out of his way to say that they were, they were, they prophesied. There were four virgins. Mm-hmm. He had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Yeah. Um, which basically means they, they receive a word of God that, to be sure, was to be tested by the community, but they were speaking the word of God to the people of God. Um, and uh, so, you, so you have those, those powerful texts, and then you have a text like Galatians 3, which you, I think you alluded to, mm-hmm. you know, and now in Christ, there is neither slave or free, male or female. And uh, I, I've heard people say, and actually I used to say this, that that passage means that in the mind of God, we are all equal. So in the mind of God, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free,. There's but that would be like saying that, yeah, that would be like saying that God loves us in His mind, but He doesn't do anything about it in the actual real world, right? <laughs> That's not how it works. Paul, he wants to make Galatians 3:18 a reality. Huh. He wants to make it so that there are no use of Gentiles, and so he's having them have meals together. And that raises all kinds of problems, as we can—I mean, you know better than than me about this in Romans 14 and 15. And I think he's trying to do away with slavery, and I think he's trying to do away with a system that would oppress women. Mm -hmm. And so when I read all those texts and then I get to 1 Timothy 2, I find 1 Timothy 2 utterly strange. Mm. Utterly strange. And I say, you know, there has to be something in the congregation, something on the ground that is— Leading Paul to speak this way, hmm.
0: it's almost yeah. like how I'm gonna feel. You might like this analogy, you might not. But like how Calvinists would come to Hebrew six or something. <laughs> 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 I mean, I agree with whatever perception you want. But that that's that's kind of any any system will have that passage or that passage that's like, well, that doesn't really resonate with the. The, the rest of scripture i mean and then this, this is a basic hermeneutical point we we do take rarely is there a doctrine or an ethical point that just has complete unambiguous uniformity throughout scripture there's always tensions and differences even something like like a d- divorce or um, or gosh i mean we can go on i mean observing the, the Sabbath, the
2: eucharist
1: <laughs> what's that <laughs> the eucharist, the eucharist. Uh, uh, yeah, right. yeah all of that. so you yeah. know my belief today i'm gonna i'm gonna be upfront because I'm already convinced about this now, uh, although sometimes I have questions. <laughs> but my belief is that whatever a man can do at the church, so can a woman. Okay. But, here's a but, we must pay attention to, to the culture where we're ministering. Okay. So if I'm in a culture like, say, some countries in the Middle East, where it is an honor and shame culture and the woman c- cannot be viewed as a leader, I would not thrust a woman forward and say, you must be a pastor here, because that endangers the the gospel. You have to go slow, and as more people convert, their worldview changes. It becomes a biblical worldview, and then maybe you can uh, start, you know, the woman having more freedom in in that particular culture as a pastor. But I think in North America today, uh, this is not a patriarchal culture. And right. I actually think that it hurts the testimony of the yeah, church yeah. not to have women uh, in in positions of leadership in the church.
0: Well, it it it, it furthers that perception or stigma that the church is anti women or misogynistic or 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 patriarchal in the bad sense of the term. Um, yeah, Kristen, do you, um, as a female with a master of divinity who is uh, so you're not in a ministry position now, but you maybe you would be in the future. But you're doing you're doing yeah. it right. I mean, you're you're speaking, you're writing, you're you may not be a full full time paid pastor, whatever. But like, how do you feel as a female in American evangelicalism, broadly speaking, in 2019? Is it hard? Do you still feel the misogyny? Is it getting better? Yeah, or? You
3: know, I, I haven't had a lot of negative experiences one on one, where my struggle has been, and where I'm very passionate about in, in the work that I do today, is that in a lot of the churches, in a lot of evangelical churches in particular, and perhaps even more so in the South, there just aren't uh, a lot of spaces for women. And there's, I think that goes to a lack of the- a theological view regarding women in ministry, So for a lot of churches, I think we've been content with the status quo or just the way things have always been done with a very uh, male-dominated, leading-type church. And I was telling Osvaldo the other day, I said, gosh, it just dawned on me. So when you go to a lot of these churches, if you go in as a male, and I'm just using an example here, but if you go in as a male— Every moment of your worship experience and your teaching, you know, receiving teaching in the Sunday school hour is mitigated, is, is delivered, is shaped by men. So you go in, you, the prayer is done by man, a man, the offering is done by a man, the usher is our men, the person reading scripture might be a man, the preacher, the Sunday school teacher is a man, the worship leader is a man how are women informing you spiritually in the church? They may be there next to you singing with you, but it's almost as if you have two churches (laughs) within the church. So then, you know, the women can get together and um, have a kind of church together. But as a man coming in, uh, nothing about uh, that worship experience may really be touched by a woman. Why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because for one, we say that the church is a family of God. Mm-hmm. And we are, <laughs> evangelicals are really strong, you know. Families should have a father and a mother at home. That is the best case for mm-hmm. children. We make a huge fuss and, and case about um, the need for um, mm-hmm. traditional marriage and fathers and mothers. But then you get to the church, how is it functioning like a family? Thinking where are yeah. where are the mothers? How are women ministering to you? And I've heard Osvaldo say this, that especially this church that we were at during his sabbatical um, in Cambridge, he said, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, mm-hmm. right here, but he said that I need to hear God's word through the mouth of a woman, just like I need to hear things from my mother. Hmm. I need to hear grace and forgiveness and love for my mother, just like I need it for my father. Mm-hmm. So there is something about um, a woman that the, and it fits with the complementary view that men and women are different. And whatever that means, whatever it means to be masculine and feminine, it, the, the, the thing is we need each other. God has made it as such that um, from the very beginning in the garden that you needed both. Mm -hmm. Um, to minister, to serve um, on behalf of God. You find that at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And so I want to push back this. um, I want to push back and say, we desperately need women who are called by God and are theologically trained ministering to the people of God. Um, Our women need that, but our men need to, in some shape or form, to to have something of their worship experience, their spiritual formation, uh touched yeah. by mothers of God. Uh, or it, it, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Let me I wanna you
0: you said something I was gonna ask this, and I never know quite how to ask this or say it. And I um I'm glad you so so you said theologically trained. So I've seen in some circles that are working so hard for female equality in the preaching and teaching that and, and again maybe it's my male privilege the blinders i have on whatever but sometimes i'm like ah i'm kind of cringing at this female speaker and i don't think it's because she's a female it's just that like she has no theological training not that you need a degree but like yeah she's saying things about the text that are like oh my god i just like i i think if you had a penis i'd be cringy i think i'm pretty sure like i and i'm like man are we pushing so in some circles are we pushing so hard to reverse the wrong that now we're like lowering the sort of theological bar and and this is what i love about you guys because both of you guys are theologically wired you're passionate about that everything so it's not even but i i have you seen that or is that a um well you know who it was it was sydney park who we studied with in aberdeen that you know here's a female she's Korean she has a with the Fuller Seminary she's getting a PhD and even she's like I don't know if I'm called to ministry and she was so sick and tired of people saying you need to be in ministry you need to be in ministry and it was really because she's a female it's like yeah. wait your first question should be am i called am i qualified am i you know like yeah. and then we can talk about the fe- but just because like being a female doesn't qualify me more it's just right you know like i so i'm i'm, I'm i am weary and maybe it's too like, um, and maybe this is but this is more of an issue in more charismatic circles. There were very pro women in ministry, and even then, some sometimes in some charismatic circles, theological training is you know almost like a negative thing or irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Or and so I gosh, I just probably offended twenty percent of my audience. Uh, no, <laughs> so that 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 is all a summary quote from a lot of my theologically equipped. Uh, pentecostal friends who are like man we like they, they're the ones that say like <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, our tradition I, needs more theology you know so I I, been, I, I, i'm just kind of yeah. nervous about that kind of
3: oh, yeah, thing. yeah.
0: I,
1: I i was gonna say present that i've read craig keener for example say just recently that uh that the pentecostal charismatic movement needs more theological yeah. education and that's not because of any bad that's just how it he's is kind of, he's pentecostal Yes, I he is a Pentecostal, so I, I don't think – that was, didn't sound offensive to me, what you said.
2: Okay. So
0: I think the friend that uh, AJ, A.J. Swoboda is foursquare, and he'd be the same thing. He's got a Ph.D., but he's like, man, my tradition needs more of this. So. Right.
3: Uh-huh. I have a theory, and I could be wrong, but on the conservative side, <laughs> I mean, it's just ironic, Preston. I, <laughs> I've heard growing up, um, they'll point to women without theological training who are out speaking, and they'll say, see, that's why women can't be preachers or (laughs) teachers. Yet, they'll let encourage their women to go to seminary. They won't pay for them Ah, to go to seminary. And then if if they do go to seminary, you know, the biggest struggle of our women coming out of seminary is not finding a job. Hmm. So I um, spoke with several women uh, last semester who were talking to me about should I come to be some Divinity School? And the number one reason that they said that they were hesitating to come to seminary was because they felt sure that they would not be able to find a job at a church as a woman. Yeah. So why, so, so it's this almost like <laughs> we want to point to the women and say, see, those women are examples of why they, women shouldn't be in ministry. But yet We haven't changed it to to be where we're encouraging women to ministry, and then we're creating spaces for them to serve that fit within our theological tradition. So I think if you're a complementarian, there's so much room and space where you can um, grow and create uh, jobs at your church um, for women in ministry, or you hire women for those jobs that they can do. I know Jim Wilkin talks about this. Um, if I may yeah. just
1: interrupt real quick, a lot of this, a lot of the women that Kristen is talking about, when we actually talk to them, a lot of them don't even want to be senior pastors. Mm-mm. So it's not, uh, it's not like I want to be the the head of a big church. Many of them are just saying, I just want to have a place to serve in the church and make a living out of the gospel because I feel I feel God calling me. So. I want to be a children's minister. I want to be a, a woman's minister. And, uh, you know, so even if we can create space like that for, for women who feel called, I, I think that would be a great advance for the church. Mm-hmm.
3: And it's funny how, and I know Tisha's talked about this, but uh, <laughs> the Spirit of God is moving women to want to serve Him. And so if they can't find it in the church, they're, they're going to these other spaces. Oh, like blogs and um, podcasts and conferences. And, What's wrong with podcasts? Right, <laughs> 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 but they're 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 kind of going out on their own apart from the church. And then, to be frank, once they get a big enough platform, publishers are giving them the book deals and asking them to write the Bible studies, and then they're getting invited to the conferences, and and thus it goes on. So. I feel like the church really needs to formulate a theology for women in ministry, whatever tradition you're in. Um, And if you don't think that God calls women to ministry or that they're even needed in ministry, that the church needs mothers, then, then that's, that's a significant, to me, that's, that's going to be a problem. But if you do believe that God calls women to ministry, then start thinking through what could this look like at our church within our tradition within our set of beliefs. And as Osvaldo said, I'm not even, um, called to be a senior pastor. You know, most women are not at sim at Beeson Divinity School, at least aren't pursuing, um, senior pastor roles. Mm-hmm. They're just wanting to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the challenge I think that a lot of women face today is, is um, that lack of space, that lack of theology, that lack of encouragement, and then those voices that say what you're doing is heretical or mm. sinful. And so, you know, it, it just kind of makes it a, a little bit more difficult and challenging atmosphere for women. Um, mm. Yeah.
0: What do you think is the best in your opinion, going back to uh, playing devil's advocate, what would you say is the best argument that women are obvious, obviously, I'll say obviously fully equal, um, have gifts, talents, the church wouldn't exist, wouldn't succeed without the robust ministry of women. And yet because of, I don't know, order of creation, because of God's desire to keep, sex differences in tact whatever uh, that women are not god does not desire that women would be in a church leadership role what do you think is the best argument for that kind of position
1: yeah i think the best argument in my mind to my mind the best argument would be what i would call a flat reading of first timothy two (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough yeah so um which i'm sorry you know i don't mean to be Disparaging, uh, I have a lot of dear brothers and sisters who who don't who we don't see this eye to eye on this. Yeah. Um, we have wonderful fellowship. And I would uh, say
3: at BU we don't take a stance. So we yeah, have I, faculty I, and and staff and students who would disagree and would come from both right complementary uh, and egalitarian. Oh, yes, yes. traditions. Tradition. I mean,
1: I, I I do have to say that there's a certain. Uh, Maybe at extremes of both ends that I have a little patience for. Both at the extreme complementarian and, and the yeah. at the extreme egalitarian. Like uh, the extreme egalitarian would be, uh, you know, the novelist Margaret Atwood. Uh, she wrote the book uh, that made it into a big uh, series on Hulu called uh, The Handmaids. The Handmaid. The Handmaid in stone? The Handmaids. Oh, yeah, stone? yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, what? Well, anyways, in the in that book. Uh, there is an egalitarian, she puts into the, she has a woman speak like a radical egalitarian, critiquing a man, and the man is so frustrated that he says, Do you want me to cut off my testicles? <laughs> it's, yeah, that, uh,
0: that, that, where like mass like men are just toxic intrinsically. And, or so here's what I don't, on the, to use your term, extreme egalitarian side, if people feel the need to diminish, sex differences to get to to achieve equality that I don't I don't not only find that in scripture but I think sometimes the arguments are just like we're yeah. we're not the same like we're beautifully different we should celebrate our differences and this is something like N.T. Wright and Mike Byrd and others are passionate of ma- maintaining the beautiful mm-hmm. um, differences between men and women that these reflect God's creation um, and yet yeah, they yeah. argue that within those differences, and because of those differences, men and both yeah. women should be in leadership positions. Um, but the, yeah, it's it's that extreme view that feels like they need to diminish differences in order to achieve equality. To me, that's that's just going against the grain of scripture, I feel.
3: And I would uh, throw a wrench in this, Preston. So Osvaldo and I don't use uh, complementary or egalitarian labels of ourselves, although we would say that we're complementarian in some ways and egalitarian in other okay. ways um
0: non-hierarchical complementarian is that uh that's a phrase from my <laughs> that we are
3: we are different and that we right. need th- those differences to complement one another as i've said with the father and mother i think that's actually more complementarian than what you find in some churches yeah. um but yeah. the sometimes when you start using labels, the other other people stop listening to you. Yes. They've assigned everything that goes with what they think goes with that label and it's the end of the conversation. Yeah. And so we have friends that use lab, those labels and that's fine and some people would say you are this or you are that but um we want as as Valdez says he's biblical. <laughs> that's his label. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Try> to be <laughs> uh,
0: hey we're we're over an hour now uh, i've got to run i'm sure you guys do too but i just um thank you so much for your spirit and i just love hearing how people engage this conversation well i i don't even you i mean i've said in a podcast several times like i i'm kind of up in the air i need to do a ton of study on it before i really land and and this is why I keep having more and more egalit sorry, non-hierarchical, whatever. <laughs> uh, because I already know, I feel like I know all the ins and outs of the complementarian view. Um, and to me, I'm just trying to really get inside of, of the other view. And, and to me, it doesn't, it comes to, for me, it comes, I come at scripture with the, the big question mark in me is if the complementarian, for lack of better terms, is correct what's the what's the log, moral logic for that even if you made an argument that most men are by, because of testosterone whatever we don't know whatever let's just say most males have natural leadership qualities even if you said that it's still like 70 30 percent well women are more emotional than men or then you know whatever it's like okay, even if you said that, and even that's biologically debated, but that's still, it's a generality. It's not a hundred
2: percent.
0: Some men weep during movies and their wife's sitting next to them. Like, what do you do? You know, like, I don't, so it doesn't, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense to universally exclude women from leadership. Even if you tried to say, well, God's natural wiring of male and female, one's sure, more wired sure. leadership. It's still a generality. So I don't, and I know that's not a biblical argument, but it's, a, it's a one from general revelation, natural law. So to me, it's just I come at it with a huge question mark saying, what?
1: Sure, sure. Why yeah, would... I, you know, even when we think about what does it mean to be a leader, um, what that looks like in North America may be very different from what it looks like in, in Latin America. So maybe in Latin America, uh, a leader... Who has emotions is more valued than a leader, <laughs> more, you know, hardwired and just a facts please. Oh, that's so uh, good. So, you know, where I land anthropologically in these things is that apart from the, from the sexual differences that God has, has put in us as male and females, uh, the difference between men and women is one of degree, not one of kind.
0: Yes. That's so, so yeah.
1: Anything that a man can do, a woman can do except for you know give birth (laughs) so so anything that a man can do a woman can do and anything that a woman can do a man can do we're just different in degrees not in kind we are the same kind we are human beings made both in the image of god Mm -hmm. uh and then we have uh yeah then we have uh we tend to go in different ways but that's just a broad tendency yeah yeah
3: Yeah, i and i know we're out of time but What this conversation looks like as a Baptist is different than what it looks like as, let's say, an Anglican or Episcopalian. Mm. So we have complementarian Anglicans at Beeson. And what that looks like in their church is women can be ordained as a deacon, but not as a... That um, women can preach, but they can't serve behind the table, at uh, serve the sacraments. So in a Baptist church, though... (laughs) Um, uh, To be a complementarian means that a woman can't preach. And so what this looks like in the different um, traditions can then have all sorts of conversations because the conversation I have with my Anglican brothers and sisters on this issue about why a woman can't stand behind the table um, is a lot different than the conversations I have with my Baptist brothers and sisters about why a woman um, can't preach God's word in, in different yeah. settings. So, that's,
0: that's fascinating. And that has to do with how it, just ecclesi- the ecclesiological differences. Yes.
3: Yeah. And I wonder if preaching, whether or not we say it is, if if we think of it as a sacrament in certain okay. traditions, and that's maybe even why even more so we're reticent to allow women to preach. I, I don't know. That's just a question because in, in the Anglican church, Um, It is those sacraments that are, um, especially, I I I don't want to say off limits to women. And not just, and I say Anglican, I'm thinking some ACNA um, churches, whereas in the Episcopal Church, of course, this is not, we have all kinds of other issues in the Episcopal Church. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like getting people to show up on Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are full on Episcopal,
0: not even Anglican, right? I mean, you went all the way.
1: Yeah. Well uh, we go to one uh, to one uh, uh the Cathedral Church of the Advent is a strong evangelical one of the few episcopal okay. evangelical churches uh in this area.
3: It describes itself as a unicorn.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh right. But but it's uh it's it's evangelical and based on the book of common prayer. Yeah. Uh, we love the book of common prayer and uh, so it's rare to find that in a american episcopal church yeah evangelical and book of common prayer base uh you know but uh yeah yeah
3: Yeah, but i think the question for another podcast preston with someone else maybe but the you know there are questions of what for a woman what does it mean to be a woman what does it mean to be in christ Mm -hmm. what is the role of the holy spirit um in these matters uh church history um, could be its own podcast on the treatment of women and women's roles. So when we have these conversations, I encourage people that to have, to have the conversations and to have it in humility, but to recognize that, um, it's something that we need to continue to discuss, right? It it deserves ongoing
2: discussion.
0: Do you, I know I keep, I keep continuing us, but, um, is, is there a need for more books to be written? Or I mean, is there anything that hasn't been said on this topic? Because people tell me like, you should, because I'm kind of on the fence and whatever, I, I can go either direction, um, yeah. that I should pursue this on book. But I'm like, dude, there's like thousands of books on this. I can't imagine there's another word that hasn't been said that needs to be said. Or do you feel like this is an area that still needs to be, you know, addressed? No. Or-
3: uh, I, I keep book ideas on my phone, so I have enough. Five. No. Um, I, yeah, I think there are just like there continue to be books on any number of things.
2: Yeah. We continue
3: mm-hmm. to write books on Augustine and Luther and the doctrine of salvation and ecclesiology. And um, so, the, yeah. as long as we're going to the Word of God, I think there's just. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of work that we can continue to do. And I think there's, right now, in my view, I think there's a lot more conversations needed in light of trying to base this in um, an ordering of the Trinity. Mm. And that, those kinds of... Um,
1: Highly problematic and yeah. dubious approaches. <laughs> uh, yeah, and but how, but what, how
3: that affects how we think about this issue in women.
1: I was gonna to say too that I think in theology now, there's a rebirth on uh, anthropology, on the theology of anthropology. What yeah. does it mean to be human? In light of uh, artificial intelligence and things like that, we're yeah, thinking more true. and more what, I, so like uh, Karl Barth's uh, volume three or book three that has to do with the doctrine of, of, of creation. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people are working on that part of Karl Barth now because we're thinking about what it means to be a human being. And to the extent that male and females are human beings, uh, there, is, there is a lot of room for writing about this. Uh, so I, I, I agree with Kristen.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I have an eye on this topic largely because I'm knee deep in transgender questions and yes. which deal so, with similarity. What does it mean to be male, female, masculine, feminine, and these kind of categories. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, you guys, for being on the show. Uh, one more time, Kristen, your book is Now That I'm Called, right? Um, yeah. wh- who's the publisher?
3: Zondervan Academic.
0: That's right. Okay.
3: okay. So the awesome. subtitle is A Guide for Women Discerning a Call to Ministry.
0: Awesome. And it's both testimonial and theological, biblical, whatever. Is it kind of woven together?
3: Yeah, the first five chapters is Moving Through Scripture. Okay. And the fifth chapter, Dealing with First Timothy 2. And then the last three chapters, um, more practical, what okay. does this look like? Theological education. Um, so I hope that it continues to be a good resource to awesome. women. Yeah.
0: And Ozzy, you write books and nobody understands, right? You still were doing academic. <laughs> 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 well, well, I'm all totally this that's that's <laughs> a stereotype, right? Like we sit our yeah. ivory tower and say stuff that like you're working on. A co- are you, your commentary is at the wall? Are you working on other things or?
1: Uh, yeah, we're actually. Uh, I'm editing. I'm, I'm not the main editor, but I'm one of the editors in a book called "The New Testament in Color," oh, which cool. uh, is four. Four of us, uh, two females. One is an Anglo female. The other one is an Asian uh, American female, and then an African American brother, and myself, a Hispanic. Oh, and okay. so we're we're all we're. Doing this book called New Testament. We're not; there are contributors to to this book, in, uh, in addition to us. But it's a uh, the New Testament in color, and it's uh, how your uh, your background, your ethnicity, can help you see things that maybe somebody else couldn't see, and vice versa,
2: yeah.
1: uh, as you interpret the New Testament. And that's going to come out with IVP, uh, probably maybe two or three years. It's still okay. in the
0: Stages, but it's That's good. awesome! What a great book. That's
3: awesome.
0: Yeah, we hope it's going to be helpful. Thanks so much for being on, you guys. Really appreciate you, yeah, and I'll uh, probably see you in a few weeks huh? that, uh, in San Diego.
3: Thank you. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. If you have been blessed, challenged, or encouraged by Theology in the I encourage you to consider to pray about, to meditate on the possibility of contributing financially to the show. This is a listener-supported podcast. And if you want to help out the Theology in the Raw ministry, then uh, please go to uh, patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And in return, you get access to premium content like once a month podcasts that I create only for my Patreon supporters or once a month blog posts that I write only for my Patreon supporters. And also you get access just to some informal chit chat conversations, community discussions on the Patreon platform. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash TheologianNara would really love and um, be thankful for your support. So we'll see you next time on the show.